Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We will read our text um, later in the sermon. In examining the question and trying to answer why is it so hard to believe in today's world, last week we looked at the issue of unbelief. And as I said last week, I'm extremely grateful to Oz Guinness and his most recent work and uh, his thoughts have been, I think, very helpful for me, guiding me in the area of unbelief. We looked at a number of matters last week, including how unbelief abuses the truth. I must mention that many people today don't believe in truth at all. They've espoused the position of relativism, and they argue that everything at best is relative, and at worst is simply the will to power. So for some people, the issue of truth is is not something that they even discuss. This isn't the way it's been in the past. This isn't, isn't the way it's always been. Plato and the Republic describe philosophers as those with no taste for falsehood. That is, they are completely unwilling to admit what is false, but hate it while cherishing the truth. I'm reminded of what we read from the psalmist, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Indeed, I think you could make the case that even people who say they do not believe in truth in fact, on some level, do. Um, it is because of sin, however, that this all gets twisted around. And as Augustine said, that man's love of truth is such that when he loves something that is not truth, and we could say in today's world, because people don't believe truth, he pretends to himself that what he loves is the truth because he hates to be proved wrong. He will not allow himself to be convinced that he is deceiving himself. So he hates the real truth for what he takes to his heart in its place. In the modern age, there are those who claim to be searching for the truth, who in fact, in fact blatantly twist facts to make their point for the sake of their cause. And we didn't talk about this last week, I'll just mention it in passing. Someone like Alfred Kinsey, whose groundbreaking work on sexuality turned out to be based on flagrantly flawed and fraudulent data. Or Betty Friedan the author of The Feminine Mystique. It was not a stifled suburban housewife, as she depicted herself, but a communist activist and propagandist with a full-time maid. Uh, Paul DeMann, who is a celebrated deconstructionist and taught at Yale, a professor, was discovered later on to be a former Nazi collaborator with an appalling record of lying and deception. Paul Johnson, in his book, Intellectuals, from Marx and Tolstoy to Sartre, uh, uh, and Chomsky wrote, Beware intellectuals. There are those, in fact, who claim to be searching for the truth, who, in fact, are engaged in flagrant lying. But what about unbelief? What do we say about unbelief? As we saw last week in the scripture, there are at least four descriptions of unbelief. And to review briefly, first of all, unbelief abuses the truth through a deliberate act of suppression. That is, it is as though unbelief grabs the truth roughly and seeks to silence its voice. It will not allow it to be heard. By itself, the truth speaks naturally and clearly. But unbelief censors it, tries to silence it, and blocks it. Secondly, unbelief abuses the truth through a deliberate act of exploitation. Um, unbelief has its own agenda. And when it does not match the truth, 
then it simply goes its own way. As Micah wrote, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. This is what unbelief does. Thirdly, it abuses the truth through a deliberate act of inversion. That is, it turns things upside down. We are the creatures, God is the creator, but then ever since Eden we have tried to become, put ourselves in the place of the creator, and that we are the ones who call the shots. We make ourselves gods instead of God. We hear this in the scriptures from Ezekiel 28. In your pride you said, I am a god. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. And then perhaps more familiar from Isaiah, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? But this is what unbelief does. It twists things upside down, inside out. And fourthly, unbelief abuses the truth through a deliberate act of deception and something that ends in self-deception. Unbelief not only manufactures idols, it also manufactures illusion. As I mentioned last week, one philosopher wrote, as our hearts can't stop pumping blood, so our minds can't stop pumping illusions. But how does this happen? How is it that we are so easily deceived? How do we deceive ourselves? Well, first of all, we think that we're right. To be human is to think that you're right. But we are so finite and our vision is so narrow that anything that does not fit within what we think is right, we simply reject. And in the process, there's a whole spectrum of things that we have ignored because it doesn't fit in with our narrow view of things. What we do is we take things within our vision and make them, as Augustine said, we make them truth, even if they're not truth. And so evil imitates good. And unbelief copies truth. And vice must mimic virtue. In Proverbs we read, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. I mentioned this at the end of the sermon last week. We should never treat unbelief as theoretical or neutral, or that's just the way people think. It's their worldview. And then at, uh, toward the end, I talked about the matter of consistency or lack thereof, that people live within a tension between two poles. The logic of God's truth pulls them this way, and the logic of unbelief pulls in the opposite direction. If people will follow the logic of God's truth, it will lead them to God himself. But if, in fact, they follow the logic of unbelief, it will lead to disaster. And people don't want to end up in disaster, but neither do they want to be taken to God. And so they find themselves being pulled in, in both directions and wanting, in a sense, to stake out a middle ground, not neutral, but a middle ground between the two. I mentioned last week that there is the dilemma pull and the diversion pull. The dilemma pull can be expressed or ex, uh, explained this way. The more consistent people are to their, if you wish, non-biblical way of thinking, the less close they are to reality. Because God created the world, and if you say, no, God did not create the world, and if you are consistent with that, then you are going away from God's world, if you wish. And you will begin to feel the tension. Um, the diversion poll expresses the fact that the less pe consistent people are, that is, they don't, in fact, 
believe that God is the creator, but they live as though he is the creator. They are not consistent with how they live. But this creates problems, and so they must find diversion. And as I mentioned, Blaise Pascal in his Ponsis said, I've often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his own room. But you know what? Enough talking about those who are not believers, unbelievers, who are inconsistent, who are found in unbelief. What about us? We who claim to believe the truth, are we consistent? Sadly, far too often the answer is a resounding no. And our record is frankly quite shameful. Julian the Apostate, he was the last of the Constantinian emperors in that line, was someone, as far as we know, was raised by Christian parents. And in his uh, youth, uh, was taught by Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil the Great, two of the great Christian leaders of that time. But he turned against the Christian faith. And once said to those around him, no wild beasts are so dangerous to man as Christians are to each other. You see, earlier Roman emperors had thrown Christians to the lions, but the Christian faith had flourished in the midst of persecution. The blood of the martyrs is said to be the seed of the church, but the battles of the faithful and our inconsistency are the scandal of the faith. To put it all in a word, it is hypocrisy. It has been said that all Christians are hypocrites. They do not practice what they preach. They do not walk the talk. They talk such fine ideals and make superior judgments. Yet, in fact, when they are exposed, shame is what they deserve. In fact, some would argue that Christians are the worst hypocrites in the world. And for that reason, people reject the Christian faith. And for many Christians, they walk away from the church because of the hypocrisy that they see. And certainly hypocrisy makes it hard to believe in today's world. Some have concluded that history proves that the Christian faith is simply hypocrisy incarnate. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God are told, you are my witnesses. In Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. It's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, before his ascension, Jesus told his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Simply put, we are called to be his witnesses, witnesses for him, to provide an honest and factual account of what we have seen and heard and what we ourselves have experienced. But if we are hypocrites, if hypocrisy is found in our lives, it damages damages our being witnesses because it gives us, well, it undercuts our testimony. Why would anyone believe us if, in fact, we say one thing, we are witnesses for it, but we live in a different way? Oftentimes, even before we have said a single word about the gospel, 
our witness has been undercut. Our lives contradict our words. Throughout history, people have pointed out the hypocrisy of Christians. Unbelievers have. Let me just read you a couple of quotes. George Bernard Shaw. Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. And then from Nietzsche, in truth, there was only one Christian and he died upon the cross. But unbelievers aren't the only people who recognize their hypocrisy. Christians have as well. Um, We don't delight in it. In fact, we sorrow over it. Erasmus in the 16th century said, if we would bring the Turks to Christianity, we must first be Christians. And Kierkegaard in the 19th century, millions of Christians down the centuries have succeeded in making Christianity exactly the opposite of what it is in the New Testament. Let's face it, hypocrisy is a very serious problem. For those who believe the truth, who seek to defend the truth, it is a serious issue. But let's ask, what is hypocrisy? And why is it so serious? And in what sense does it count against the faith? Are Christians the only hypocrites? Or are Christians simply the worst hypocrites? How are we to counter this with some measure of authenticity? Our text today is from 1 Peter chapter 2. It is verse number 1, if you look at it. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. It starts out with therefore, which means that Peter is drawing a conclusion. For what reason? Because of what? Well, because of what he's just said. If you look in chapter 1, verse number 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And this is connected to what happens a few verses earlier in verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Therefore, we are to get rid of these things. And the word means like taking off your clothes. We are to undress. We are to get these things off of us. These, these all, the all malice, all deceit, and all hypocrisy. There are, in the Greek, they're all plurals. See, where unbelievers cannot finally be true to what they believe, they cannot be fully consistent, okay? Because their faith is not in line with what is really there. God did create the world. This is his creation. So they cannot be true. But as believers, we should be true to our faith, to what we believe, and we must be. Otherwise, we will be guilty of hypocrisy, which in many ways not only makes it difficult for unbelievers to come to the truth, but oftentimes makes it difficult for our brothers and sisters to continue to believe the truth because of our inconsistency. What are we to do? What are we to do about the matter of hypocrisy? Osginus has suggested several things, and I will follow his lead. First of all, I think we need to begin the discussion by agreeing that deception and per, uh, deception is pervasive and common to humanity. All human beings ultimately are hypocrites. Common to both what we find in Scripture but also in modern philosophy and psychology, is the assertion that deception and self-deception 
are fundamental and pervasive to the human condition. This is what it means to be human. That we are deceivers and we are deceived at the same time. Now, in the modern world, what we find as something that is accepted simply as this is the way it is and you need to deal with it, is that there is a gap between the real me, the inner me, and the outer me, the one that everybody sees. Between reality and appearance. Simply put, nothing is as it ever appears to be. This is what the Bible refers to as the deceitful heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It is true that people today talk about things like transparency, authenticity, accountability, sincerity, as though these were easily attainable, that it's not that hard to be transparent or authentic, or in fact, to simply speak the truth, to be sincere and accountable. Most people, when they use these words, are quite naive, in part because they don't recognize the sinfulness of the human heart. Complete transparency is, in fact, impossible. True authenticity is harder than ever before, and real accountability is easier to avoid than ever before because of mobility and anonymity. And sincerity can be dangerous if it takes the place of truth. Uh, I was in Boise uh, last June for the wedding of my nephew. I was there for Sunday, and the pastor there uh, at All Saints, Brad Cheney, was preaching on Philippians chapter 1. And there's that difficult passage where, where Paul says, you know, there's some people who are preaching the gospel, trying to make my life miserable. They're trying to add to my affliction in chains. And he's like, I don't care, as long as the gospel is preached. And as Brad pointed out, for Paul, the truth was what was important, not sincerity. And for us in the modern age, that's counterintuitive. We're more more like, well, as long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. No, no. Truth is what matters, and we may or may not be sincere. And Paul in Philippians 1 said, listen, even if people are insincere in preaching the gospel, at least the gospel is being preached. I think we need to think that through. Guinness writes, It has always been true that the same people who are fashionably skeptical and careless about the truth are almost never skeptical or blasé about lying. So they can be skeptical about truth, but or not skeptical, or they are skeptical about truth, but lying doesn't bother them. Well, let me start over again. I'm losing my place here. They are skeptical when it comes to the truth, careless about the truth, but not so about lying, especially when you lie to them. Then all of a sudden, they are quite concerned. The plain fact is that a lie is a claim about reality that is stated with the express intention of misdirecting the truth and deceiving someone. A lie assumes a knowledge of the truth, and it has to. If a speaker does not know the truth, his false claim would not be a lie, but an error. If hypocrisy is a violation of the truth, Um, most people today can't challenge it because they don't believe in truth. So how could you claim that someone is a hypocrite? Modern people and postmodern people face a dilemma. Either they must find a way to counter hypocrisy, which means there must now be a standard. Okay, this is what is right, and if you say this and you don't match that, then you're a hypocrite. 
Or, in fact, they could say there is no God, there's no objective truth, and so you can do whatever you want. And there can be no hypocrisy. The only possible response is cynicism. So let's begin our discussion by saying we are all hypocrites in today's world. No one is fully consistent with what they say they believe. But secondly, let's clarify some of the issues. What Guinness calls the street level. Hypocrisy is the gap between truth and lies. I think people know that. Children know that. You said one thing, but you did something else. It is a gap between integrity and falsehood, between justice and injustice. And what do you do? Well, you cover up the gap. This is what you say. This is what you do. Well, there's a, there's a problem. So you cover it over with pretense that is false or pose. You become a poser, if you wish, and pretend to be something or someone you are not. As Christians, we need to recognize that there is a gap. There is a gap between truth and lies. People only see one thing and they don't recognize the reality of it. We sang the hymn today, Amazing Grace. It was written by John Newton, who, in, before he became a Christian, uh, was a slave trader. And you know, the first line says that saved a wretch like me. John Newton certainly saw himself as a sinner before God. And one day someone was coming up to him and and singing his praises, all the wonderful things he had done. And he said, "Um, the devil's already told me all that. Um, Yeah, People see one thing and they don't recognize the reality behind it. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, who was a famous Scottish preacher, was congratulated by a parishioner for his saintliness. He replied sharply, Madam, if you could see in my heart, you would spit in my face. We as Christians recognize that there is, in fact, a gap between what we say and what we do. That we are, in fact, fallen and we are sinners. But we need to be careful. Because if we are not careful, we may take this too far and say, well, we can't ever say anything about anything because we are never fully consistent. Um, yes, we believe the truth, but we don't live the truth, so maybe we should never speak the truth because to do so would, to be, would be hypocritical, would be to be a hypocrite. We should recognize that there's a, an important difference between the source of a truth claim and the standard by which it is to be assessed. In the same way that after a parent bathes a child and gets rid of the bathwater, but not the baby, and a woman wears a pearl necklace around her neck, but not with the oysters. So in the same way, a truth claim has to be distinguished from the baggage of those who carry that claim truth, for those who speak that truth. A distinction might be helpful here between credibility and plausibility. Credibility is a matter of whether a belief is or is not true. Are you credible? Plausibility is a matter of whether a belief seems or does not seem to be true. And with this distinction, hypocrisy absolutely demolishes plausibility, but not credibility. It may be harder to believe something if a hypocrite tells it to you. But what a hypocrite says that they believe must be examined, regardless of the hypocrisy. If the Christian faith is true, it would still be true if no one believed it. Or if all who did believe the truth were hypocrites. And if it were false, if the Christian faith were false, 
it would still be false even if everyone believed and there was no apparent hypocrisy in their behavior. So yes, we are all hypocrites and yet at the same time, let's not take that and say, well, what are we going to do? We're all hypocrites. We're not living consistent with the truth. So maybe we should not feel that we can speak the truth to people. No. There is a difference between credibility and plausibility. Thirdly, we need to recognize, and this may sound rather strange to you, that there are, in fact, benefits to hypocrisy. As strange as it may sound, particularly to those who take the truth seriously, hypocrisy still cares enough about virtue to want to pretend to be virtuous. You see, if you did not care about what is true, if you did not care about what is right, then you would just do whatever you wanted. You wouldn't try to pretend to be something or someone you were not. That must mean, in fact, that there is something that is true. One person wrote, hypocrisy is the homage that vice plays to virtue. In other words, a bad person can pretend to be good because, in fact, there is such a thing as goodness. Another writer put it this way, there is virtually no deed inspired by charity for the sake of pleasing God. In other words, you're doing an act of charity because you want to please God that self-love could not perform for the sake of pleasing men. Do the same thing, but it's so that people will notice you. I said earlier, evil must imitate good, unbelief copy truth, and vice must mimic virtue. There's one more thing to consider in this matter. If the charge of hypocrisy is that we fail to practice what we preach, it seems to indicate that people know what it is that we preach, or they know the standards by which we are to be judged. We are followers of Jesus, and they know enough about Jesus to know that we are not living up to the way that he called us to live. That's actually not a bad thing. There is something very, very dangerous, though, and that is when people do not know how Jesus taught us to live. They do not know how Christians ought to live. They simply say, oh, the way Christians live, that's the way they should be. And so, you know, engulfed in consumer capitalism, people are assuming, well, that's simply the way that Christians live. Um, they confuse the way Christians are thinking and living with the way Christians should think and live. And this is why many people through the centuries have left the church. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected the gospel in quotation marks because of the unfaithful and corrupt expressions of the Christian faith. Before I move on, just so we're clear, hypocrisy is always wrong. It might have its social benefits, but it is always wrong. But it reveals far more, I think, than we have, could imagine. And that is that there is such a thing as truth. Fourthly, we need to remember where the critique of hypocrisy came from. In the modern world, the inner, the real, the unseen are seen as irrelevant. All that counts is appearance. Okay, it's the image. And consumer capitalism has lost no time in creating the marketplace of appearance. But the Bible is quite clear that God does not see humans or see us as we see each other. In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord does not look on the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what we learned in Scripture is that God hates hypocrisy. 
And this is the first serious critique of hypocrisy. It is found in Scripture. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus was quite vocal about hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of pretense, where we put up a front of being better than we really are. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. They're pretending to be something that they are not. And then there is the hypocrisy of blame and of being judgmental when we criticize others despite our own failings. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And then there is the hypocrisy of inconsistency. When we lay down more requirements and say, this is the way you're supposed to live, but we do not apply it to ourselves. In a fascinating passage, Jesus touches on truth as truth in the face of hypocrisy. I must confess that of all the verses, the passages in Matthew, I have found this the most disconcerting. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. Say, why Jesus? Because they're telling you the truth. This is like the passage in Philippians 1, where Paul is content that people are preaching the gospel, even if they're doing it badly or if they're doing it from insincerity, at least they're preaching the truth. And Jesus says, when these people that he is about to denounce as hypocrites, when they read to you the Old Testament, you are to obey them and do everything because they are telling you the truth. But he continues, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Here is their hypocrisy. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That is to say, they set a high standard, in some ways burdening people with guilt as they try to reach an impossible standard, when they themselves, these hypocrites, these religious teachers, are not making any effort on their own to try to reach that standard. Let's face it, one of the things that makes it difficult to believe in today's world is the inconsistency found in the church. It doesn't help that the church... Um, well, you, know, you know, the joke is how that when people are speaking to someone who does not understand them, they speak a different language, what do people do? They speak louder. As though somehow that would... Some, translate what you're saying to that person. The church has done the same thing. Instead of living up to what Jesus has called us to do, the church speaks louder and thinks that by speaking louder and being more judgmental that this will somehow bring people to faith. That's simply not the case. There's more to say about this and the Lord willing we'll come back to it next week. But I want to leave you with this. The answer to the charge that Christians are hypocrites is not to say, you are too. All people are hypocrites. That is not the answer. The answer is confession. In the words of our text, we are to get rid of all hypocrisy. We are to recognize that we are not consistent to what we believe. 
And we have a good explanation for that. We are sinners. We are fallen. And until Jesus comes back, we will continue to be sinners. But this, this cannot be allowed to justify our actions. By the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit in our lives, may we be brought closer to the, to the path of Jesus and live as we should. If you read in uh, Matthew 23, but throughout the Gospels, Jesus was far harder on hypocrites than he was on sinners. He was especially hard on those who used religion as a mask to cover their actions and their real motives. God hates hypocrisy. But I want to say here at the end, this this man, this Jesus, who condemned religious hypocrites, is the same one who cried out to God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We cannot allow ourselves to sit in judgment when we know that we, in fact, ourselves are hypocrites, that we, do not, we are not consistent to our faith. But that should not be used to silence us. We must freely confess that we are Sinners. We have done so in our worship today, in our liturgy. We have had the prayer of confession. And recognize that when we do not do as we should, we make it more difficult for other people to believe the truth. We may, in fact, make it more difficult for each other to believe the truth. May God forgive us for that. And by the grace of God, may we live lives day by day, that are closer and closer to the life he's called us to. Let's pray together. Father, in some ways we live in a world in which hypocrisy is not seen as that big of a deal. And in some ways the church, which was once castigated for being hypocritical, is simply ignored. But within the church, there are those brothers and sisters who have walked away, who have been seriously damaged because of hypocrisy. We are sinners. We freely confess that. And while we confess and believe the truth, we do not always live the truth. And in doing so, we make it more difficult for others and perhaps even ourselves to believe the truth. There is truth. There is the gospel, the good news. May we never lose sight of that. Even in the midst of our darkest moments, when we look at ourselves and wonder, how we could possibly be Christians because of our actions. That the truthfulness of the gospel is not based on us or our sincerity. It is based on truth, the reality of who you are, who Jesus is that you sent into the world. May your spirit work in our hearts, convicting us, by your grace changing us, to be more and more like Christ.
I thank you that you've called us together today. I ask that you would be with each one of us in the coming week. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.